to Inside Sponsorship, the show that provides sponsorship professionals with advice, insights and news so they can maximise their commercial programmes and achieve best practice. Hi, I'm Daniel Oyston, host of Inside Sponsorship, and you're listening to episode 100, brought to you, of course, by Core Software. It is super special to have you listening into our 100th episode, and I hope you are doing well in your part of the world. I have been plotting something a little different for the 100th episode, and that is to take a look at the future of sponsorship. As such, across the next three episodes, we're going to hear from those on the rights holders, brands and agency sides about how they think the future of sponsorship is shaping up. They've all been asked the same six questions and I've edited it up to be a roundtable of sorts. So in this episode, I'll let you know the question I asked and then you'll hear six different answers, one after the other to that one question before I move on to the next question. In each of the three episodes, I'll host six different guests and so we'll repeat this process across three episodes. So it'll be a little mini series of sorts. In the end, you'll get 18 answers to the same question and a total of 108 views on the future of sponsorship. So it is amazing to reach this this milestone, 100 episodes, super exciting. And it has to be said, we would never have made it this far without the willingness of the awesome guests to come on the show and take us inside their commercial programs. And I know how much you, the listeners, appreciate them giving up their time. Seriously, I can't thank our guests enough. I can honestly count on one hand the number of people who have said no to coming on the show when I've invited them. So again, from the bottom of my heart, thank you very much for being a part of the success of this show and helping us reach this milestone. A special shout out to Anthony Grimmer, Clint Cooper and Rachel Beanie, who all put their hand up to be our first guests, our first three guests and help get this show rolling. It was very much appreciated and we are forever grateful. That was back in February 2015 when we decided to start the show to help with the brand awareness of what was then the world's first SaaS sponsorship management platform known as some of you may remember Sponserve. We were looking for ways to add value to the sponsorship industry and of course try and get some brand awareness because we were a brand new company, a startup, and we saw that there were no sponsorship focused podcasts and so we decided to make one. But one thing we hadn't banked on was the amazing relationships and connections that we've made through the show. While it seems unfair to single anyone out, truly unfair because all of the guests have honestly been amazing, I did want to share one nice story from the connections that the show brings to us all. And that was when I had Alex Tunbridge on in episode 89 to talk about Burger King's sponsorship of Stevenage FC in English football. When I record this show. I often do it by Zoom or Teams, some sort of video app. And so guests can see my face. And so they can see behind me my office wall, which is full of sporting memorabilia. And Alex's keen eye spotted a little space on the wall. And he said that it would be perfect for a Stevie Jeff C shirt with the Burger King sponsorship across the front, the topic of the podcast we were talking about, obviously. And he promptly sent me one in the post. Alex, I can report back that it has taken me a while to get it to the framing shop. It sat next to me on my desk for quite a while. And unfortunately, the framing shop is super busy. So it's going to be a little while longer before I can hang it up on the wall. But I promise I will send a photo once I've done that. 
I loved that gesture because I love to be able to talk about the things in my collection on the wall behind me. So people will know I'm a Leeds fan and so they'll ask why I have a Stevie and Jeff C-shirt on my wall with Burger King sponsorship on it and I'll be able to tell them the awesome story of how Burger King sponsored Stevie and Jeff C but that the real long game was based on FIFA. If you didn't catch that episode, then you should head back and do so because it has been one of the smartest and most well-executed sponsorship campaigns we've ever seen. Those sorts of gestures are very much appreciated, just as much as when someone takes the time to connect on LinkedIn and just say hi for a shout out. And so speaking of which, let's do some shout outs. And the first one goes to Josh Kreitzler, co-founder at Forefront, who you will actually hear from in this show, but I promised I'd give a shout out to him anyway. Josh has lots of interesting stuff to say, so we look forward to that. The second is Jonathan Coates, Marketing Communications and Events Manager at the European Sponsorship Association, the ESA, who connected on LinkedIn and he said, hi, Daniel, I'm a convert. I'm about to embark on a new role in sponsorship, so I listened to your Best Bits of 2020 podcast to get a taste for it and will certainly tune in to more in the future. Super insights. Great to hear from you, Jonathan, and, and great to hear that you love the show and congrats on the new role. I hope it's everything that you want it to be. And finally, Peter Connolly, Director at Apex Motorsport Sponsorship, who connected on LinkedIn to say hi and let me know that I really enjoyed your recent podcast, Inside Creativity and Sponsorship. Great to hear from you, Peter. Thanks for getting in touch and connecting, and it's great to hear that you're loving the show. Other than that, you all know I love to give a good shout-out, so please connect with me on LinkedIn and say hi, and I'll give you a shout-out on the next episode. Okay, let's jump into the Future of Sponsorship series. Now, I wanted to try and have two rights holders, two brands, and two agencies across each of the three episodes purely just for my OCD but diaries and time zones and other commitments have conspired against me and I don't actually have an even split just yet as such I'm just going to roll with those guests that have booked in and we've recorded so in this episode we welcome Joel Seymour Hyde Octagon Managing Director UK Sophie Morris, who is not only the Strategic Marketing and Sponsorship Director of Mill Harbour Marketing, but also Board Director of the European Sponsorship Association and Advisory Board Member for the Institute of Sport Business at Loughborough University in the UK. Sven Glor, Global Manager, Rugby Partnerships at HSBC. Josh Kreitzler, Co-Founder at Forefront. Andrew McHale, Chief Commercial Officer at the Parramatta Eels National Rugby League Club in Australia in Sydney, and Brendan Moynihan, Executive Vice President, Consulting and Sponsorship Activation at Sport5. You know I can't help myself with an icebreaker question, so I started out by asking them, what has been your favourite ever sponsorship campaign or piece of sponsorship creative? And I did let them nominate something that they've worked on or something that they've admired and loved from afar. Here's Joel Seymour Hyde from Octagon. Probably one that's a bit of both because we were sort of involved in the initiation of the concept and the idea, but not necessarily the execution. But it was one going back quite a few years now into the sort of early 2000s called Coca-Cola Pick a Player, which was a idea for the Coca-Cola had with the English Football League, so the EFL. And the concept was effectively that how could Coke create a benefit for all the clubs? They, they were a sponsor of, of the, uh, the Football League, uh, which is obviously the, the divisions below the Premier League. So how could they create a benefit for fans that would be really tangible? And you know, it's probably changed a little bit now, because bear in mind this was, this was quite a while ago. But back then, clearly, one of the great things you could do for a club was um, help them fund buying a player because uh, none of them had any money. And... Um, 
sort of a very you know so it wouldn't take a lot of investment to really actually help a help a team with um, their transfer policy so the coca-cola buyer player competition was was created and it was effectively a mechanic where buy can get a you know a chance to have a vote and the more votes you picked for your club as a fan the more chance they had to win the competition and in the end, it was won by a Brighton and Hove Albion fan. It was a £250,000 prize. And so Brighton bought a young player called Colin Cassie Richards. And, and then sort of the story continues from there. So I think what I love about it is it's a great campaign in itself. You know, it's got an on-pack mechanic, which if you work with any FFCG client, is always massively important. So it's creating a reason to purchase. It linked to a really nice insight around what fans want from clubs, what the situation of clubs in the football league was at the time, and was a was a great execution. And then on top of all of that, you know, it kind of blew up, I think, more than anybody expected. So, you know, he was sort of effectively monikered by the press as the Coca-Cola kid. So suddenly, you know, earned media all over the place. And then he actually went on a really interesting journey. So he sort of moved on from Brighton to... Sheffield United, and then eventually, with the profile he'd got, he got effectively it came to the attention that he qualified for Turkey through sort of you know his parentage, and then he signed with Fenerbahce. He played in the Champions League. He actually went on to play for Turkey in the Euros. So you know he actually played well in the Euros. So he was in the first team and Turkey had a great tournament this was Euro 2008 and he got all the way through to the semi-finals so like phenomenal story for the for the athlete involved uh, born out of a great campaign idea so that for me is yeah uh, my number one and now Sophie Morris from Mill Harbour Marketing one sponsorship campaign that I very much admire is Electric Islands Darkness into Light, their sponsorship of Pieta House, which is a suicide prevention charity in Ireland. So Electric Island is an energy provider and with utilities obviously being a low interest but highly competitive sector that's largely driven by product and price. So they use sponsorship to drive brand differentiation and advocacy to reduce churn and to engage with their customers about things that they care about, not just energy bills. So to give a bit of context, suicide is a, is a big problem in Ireland and one that, that comes with a lot of stigma. So the aim of the campaign is to raise awareness, to educate and to raise funds for the free services that Pieta House provides. Uh, Darkness into Light, to sort of give you a bit of a background to the, the story, it's a sponsored walk and it takes place overnight. So the participants start in darkness and literally walk into the light. It's not only the charity's flagship annual fundraising and awareness event, but the meaning behind that, the walking into the light, makes it so much more than participation fundraising event. And, and clearly walking into light has a clear reference to the energy company. But as well as that, you know, because that makes it feel quite nice and feels quite good, but it's made a real significant difference to Electric Island's business, to staff and to the customers with really impressive band, brand metrics, as well as making a huge difference to the charity in the awareness that Electric Island can give to it and the fundraising campaigns and how they've managed to increase the size of the event and the number of people participating year on year. Um, it's a multi-award winning campaign. It, 
regularly takes sweeps the boards at the ESSA Awards, and it's integrated right across the business. So not only is it answering a genuine business challenge, but it does so in a way that supports the community they operate in and gives their staff something to be truly proud of of being part of. Um, they also adapted very well to the pandemic. So for what's a mass participation event that clearly couldn't go ahead as it normally would. So they changed it. They adapted as, as we all had to and changed it to the sunrise appeal. So asking people just to share their sunrise moments on social media, whether that was walking, running, cycling or swimming, just individually doing your own thing or just waking up with the sunrise to, to keep the important awareness and the those fundraising activities coming in. So for me, that is a great example of a big utilities company using sponsorship to make a real impact to the community in the market they operate in. Next to answer was Sven Glor at HSBC. So I'll use an example of uh, my time at HSBC. So one that really stands out and it's it's quite apt given the, the tour that's been undertaken in South Africa, and that's the British and Irish Lions when they toured to Australia in 2013, which was was both really rewarding from a, I guess a, a personal but very much a, a professional point of view. So I, I was working back home then, and, and just having this event is such an iconic sporting event that you know, it only comes to our shores once every 12 years. The chance to work on it was really special, and it was a time when, uh, well, then we could uh, we had the luxury and freedom of international travel for for teams, but more so, more pertinently for the uh, the fans who were allowed to travel in from around the world. So. I guess the reason I used that was at the heart of that campaign was very much the fan, particularly those coming in from the UK. And, and for its time, and looking back on it now, it sort of felt relatively brave and bold in terms of our approach. So we tried a, a number of things along the way, and, and, and it was a lot of fun as well in terms of the reactive workers as things unfolded. And it's probably the, the first time I felt that we really transcended the, I guess, the traditional sponsor approach that we'd all sort of love and knew at the time. And almost sort of propelled us into this sort of more of a partnership-driven focus and you know, the area that we kind of better know today. So lots of fun along the way and something that will always be uh, be with me. Co-founder at Forefront, Josh Kreutzler, gave this answer. It's impossible to work in this industry and pick just one piece of sponsorship creative. So I'm going to give you a couple. That wasn't the question you asked, but I'm going to give you a couple. The first one, and what was interesting is I just looked back and it's actually 20 years old at this point, is the MasterCard priceless campaign. And the reason that it's so interesting is going back to that first piece of creative, it was a father and a son at a baseball game talking about making memories and and those memories are priceless. And that campaign was actually done by McCann Erickson. And and if you go back and read, they talked about that people started submitting their own priceless campaigns, that people started submitting their own pieces of content in and around being priceless. And one of the quotes was, it was a meme before there were memes. And when you think about sort of sponsorship campaigns that one have had such a a shelf life and have made such an impression, not only on sort of the brand, but on the culture and has become sort of like a cultural tenant. And I think it did such a, just a great job of sort of blending a great message and heart. I know a lot of what we're gonna be talking about is data but I think our mantra is art, heart, and science. And so I think it was such a great blend of a really on-point campaign, but also one that just had a huge amount of heart. Now, with that, there's a couple others that definitely make the list. There was one that we did work on with eSurance and Minor League Baseball 
called hashtag call up worthy. And the reason this really resonates with me amongst the many that we did was I love sponsorship campaigns that sort of shift paradigms. And eSurance at the time, their whole premise was taking things that were, I guess you would call them uh, antiquated or when you call somebody up from the minor leagues to the major leagues and you're in the in the minors in US sports, that's the biggest moment of their career is, you know, you get called into the manager's office and you're coming to the show, but there's really no way to capture that. And what eSurance wanted to do was sort of create content in and around that moment. So the idea that we created hashtag call up worthy and essentially documented every stop along the way of a minor league player's career and sort of put it as a, as a snapshot in time. And why that was such a paradigm shift for minor league baseball is they were so specific to hard assets, right? In-stadium assets, signage, things like that. So this was really their biggest first foray into the world of digital. And it was an amazing look at sort of a social campaign and a way to sort of capture the imagination and, and sort of timestamp this piece of creative. And the last one is just fun. It was Bud Light and the Cleveland Browns. And the Cleveland Browns uh, in the NFL are not bad now, but suffered through years and years of just being an unbelievably terrible football team. And they went almost two years without winning a game. And so to start the regular season in year three, Bud Light came up with a campaign all around locked fridges in bars. So there were Bud Light fridges put in bars with chains and locks around them that literally couldn't be opened until the Cleveland Browns won a football game. And they were called victory fridges. And so the amount of excitement in the town of Cleveland when they got to open those fridges and everybody got a free Bud Light was unbelievable and it became a national news story. And what's so interesting to me about that is it's never easy, but it's a lot easier to market a winning franchise, right? If you, you're winning titles, you're winning trophies, you're winning championships, it's easy to sort of gain the, the public's attention. It's a lot harder to do that when you're, you're terrible and you're a last place team. And I think it was a great reminder to all us marketers that there's still ways to be creative regardless of what you do on and or off the field. Somebody smarter than me had a quote that said, sponsorship allows the things that we love to happen. And it's just a great reminder that sort of that connectivity and sort of that investment, if done in the right way, you know, sort of forwards the experience. And all of those, that connectivity and that journey are the ones that sort of stand out to me because all of my best memories are tied to sport, whether as an athlete or being in the stands with my dad or now being in the stands with my kids. It's Those are the memory-making opportunities. Andrew McHale from the Parramatta Eels is next. From afar, I really love what Paddy Power did with Huddersfield in 2019, where that they pulled that awesome stunt, vertically plastering that logo on the front of the jersey when they announced that sponsorship. And what I really loved about it is when you think about Paddy Power in the UK, one of their brand attributes is they're, they're really cheeky. They love to test the boundaries. So it sort of resonated with them and who they are, but it also contained a lot of those elements that you contribute to a really memorable campaign. It got people talking, it got people laughing, it got some prominent people really engaging with it, and it it had a had a bit of shock to it and, and, and really went viral. But the most important part of that campaign, I think, is the lesson for brands. And what they ultimately did was they, they removed the logo because they, they wanted to give the jersey back to fans. And I think it's a really great reminder for brands that 
fans of teams, of franchises, of clubs, they, you know, they really go in the franchise and, and brands need to be always thinking about how is this campaign ultimately going to improve the fan experience? And I think they did that really well. And finally, Brendan Moynihan of Sport5 gave his answer. I think my all-time favourite has to be the Bono's Nike spots and, and how they utilised him. It's probably the main reason why I'm in sports marketing. It was one of my all-time favourites that just sort of made sense, right? I was like, wow, okay, that makes sense. And I totally understood what they were trying to sell to me. And I bought it hook, line, and sinker, and I absolutely loved it. He was my favourite athlete. I couldn't get enough. Uh, you know, I had the poster on my wall and it was really, like I said, it really made me want to get into this sort of world. You know, personally, I'd say my favorite was from the 2009, 2010 NFL season. I was working with Motorola on their NFL sponsorship and they had just come out with this product called Moto Blur, which was about taking all your social feeds and putting it into one, like a text chain. And this is when social was really just kind of becoming a thing. Twitter just started happening. I remember I got a Twitter account and somebody said, hey, do you want me to get you a blue check and you can be the Brendan on Twitter? And I was like, what's the point of that? And now that I look back, I'm like, wow, that would have been really cool to be the Brendan, right? <laughs> so I, I, I missed that opportunity. But it, that program was so great because we basically went into uncharted territory and, and worked with a bunch of NFL players on a program called the Ocho Cinco News Network, right? And so now the Players' Tribune and all these things where we actually do want to hear from players, the concept was that, okay, social gives players the, the ability to talk directly to fans. Let's create a spoof, a news network off of CNN, right, with Ocho Cinco, who is this, you know, larger-than-life NFL player that spoke his mind and was a lightning rod, we created this fun campaign that was all about using social, right? And it was something that nobody had ever done before, and it was kind of groundbreaking, and it was really exciting to be a part of. Then we moved into the serious topics about the future of sponsorship, and I asked the group, what new skills or existing skills that will need significant development do you think sponsorship professionals on the rights holder side will need in five to ten years' time, i.e. that they're not that prominent now, but they will be in the future? Here's Joel Seymour Hyde from Octagon. Probably partly reflects the increase in demands on rights holders to deal with more complex requests from from their brand partners. You know, in terms of content types of content, formats of content, and and all those pieces. So I actually think one of the big skills is going to be rather than just being, you know, not just I should say, but being you know very capable in sort of sponsorship servicing. It's about understanding what I'd probably describe as integrated project management, because I think what we see a lot of is, you know, the ambitions and ideas that brands will have for how they want to execute sponsorships now are way more complex than they used to be and require involvement from numerous parties, you know, production companies, agencies, social partners, publishers, just lots of different types of skill sets. And so I think from the rights holder side, even if they aren't necessarily responsible for execution, having that ability to understand what an integrated campaign looks like, what project management skills are required to deliver it, and as you go into delivery, will be really beneficial. So equally, a number of rights holders, I know, are are more increasingly keen to try and take some of this stuff in-house anyway and manage direct 
um, relationships with brands. And clearly, you know, I don't want to talk, you know, agencies out of a job, clearly. But if they want to do that, they massively have to upskill in that area because it, it it's not quite there yet. And that's often one of the reasons why brands will always go to agencies because they have that ability to execute those complex programs and get the most out of them. So I think that sort of skill set, yeah, is going to be increasingly important. And now Sophie Morris from Mill Harbour Marketing. For me, it's strategy um, and understanding strategy in order to better understand and support what sponsors are trying to achieve. So on the relationship management side of, of the business, if you like, rights holders need to be able to move away from just delivery of assets that sponsors have paid for and to understand their wider business strategy of the sponsor and, and not just the marketing strategy either. What are the wider business goals? And, and that can benefit the relationship in a, a number of ways from asset selection based on relevance and ability to meet objectives. You need skills in longer-term strategic planning in order to really understand that and be able to support sponsors effectively. Then in activation ideas, only by truly understanding the strategy can you put forward activation ideas that are relevant and likely to succeed. So you might have a bank of really great ideas, but are they going to work for that particular sponsor? Are they going to integrate with the rest of their marketing activity? And are they going to move the dial in terms of their KPIs? And you only know that if you know and can understand the strategy and how that translates into what you're able to, to offer them. So I, th I think strategic understanding is, is also key in renewal proposals. Having perhaps understood that business during the first term, those with strategy building skills will be able to translate that and create more compelling propositions that answer directly to those wider goals and therefore more likely to be accepted. If, you, if your proposal is actually going to touch different areas of the business than perhaps is just coming to you from, from a marketing team, it allows rights holders to prove effectiveness in those initial areas which might be marketing related, but expand to cover other business interests um, co commonly and employee engagement, but perhaps also into product development and productivity and, and community and CSR. So for me, having a, a greater strategic understanding leads to better service, which leads to more satisfied sponsors and higher renewal intentions and would actually be quite a distinct competitive advantage. So you're also adding value to sponsors in areas that they would typically need to resource themselves. So again, in increasing the value of the sponsorship offering. So if I were advising a rights holder, I would be looking to upskill in understanding strategy to increase chances of signing new sponsors and retaining their current ones. Next to answer was Sven Glor at HSBC. I find it always an interesting one on time and the sponsorship crystal ball as we call it. So I'm sort of somewhat torn between, I feel at stages we're moving at a rapid rate of knots in our industry at an impressive pace and at other times I actually think well we're actually not and we've still got a long way to go. And we're probably not as advanced as probably where we think we are, where we should be today. So for me, yeah, there's, there's, a, there's a few here, uh, points, I guess, to unpack, but you know, there's the obvious. So there's the broader trends that we've seen emerge in recent years. So this idea of you know, the changing mindset from the one-way transaction-based sponsorship model, so cash uh, in exchange for, for rights and titlements, normally ticket signage and player appearances, et cetera. That's now, thankfully, evolving rapidly into this sort of more two-way, it's almost a value exchange and a shared IP-founded approach that we're seeing. So that, that's, a, that's a positive, something that will have to be developed over time. And I know you talk about it 
a lot on this podcast, but the days of, of sort of moving away from logo slapping, thankfully they're being replaced by this more mutually, I guess, beneficial, it's almost JV-esque, isn't it, in nature, these integrated partnership approaches. And so that's, that's sort of the theory, I guess. There's the new world science of sponsorship that we're seeing at the moment. So audience insights, you know, the, the, the presence of data analytics, there's the, the digital fan engagement strategy side of things. So I guess on the right title side, what you're going to see is this, there's an engine room that's being developed for the commercial partnerships team. And I think at the moment that's sitting behind or almost alongside them. That's actually going to be one and the same team going forward for rights holders. Another point, look, I appreciate that this is, again, it's very much the obvious and it's spruced within our industry almost on, a, on the hour, every hour on a daily basis. But, of course, it's the data piece, right, the fan data element and how to commercialise it. So the idea of a deep understanding and what's the value so you'll, you'll laugh, but, if, you know, again, it gets said every day, all day, but if data is the new oil, then how do you refine it for practical use? So that's another piece I think that will be more intrinsically, you know, important for the rights holders going forward. And then there's another one that, that I'm sort of living and breathing at the moment, very much firsthand in my world at HSBC, but this idea of a brand's purpose and values, I guess, correlating to a, to a rights holder. So that might be around sort of D&I or sustainability or charity any number of those societal cause related subject matter. I think that again is going to be at the top of a brand shopping list going forward. So what's the purpose letter gender and how can rights holders respond to that? Are they well-versed in that language? Do they have the right people, the platforms to deliver against it? There's probably an additional element to that as well. I've been thinking about recently and that's sort of the change up of rights holders teams. So I think to that point about D&I and a more diverse representation of its employees, I think that will be something you'll see as well. So they're more credible authentic and living and breathing that, that element as well. And last one, well, I guess, as we've just seen over the past 18 months, but I joke, but the idea of you know global pandemic management or COVID protocol event management, off the back of that, you're going to see a need for what I think is the idea of an innovation department or function. So how are you as a rights holder effectively helping your partners capture the hearts and minds of the next gen coming through? So that's it's almost this idea of how are you constantly looking down the road to future-proof yourself? I think that, again, will be something that you'll see in the uh, you know the top of the list for rights holders moving forward to keep up with um, the next gen. Co-founder at Forefront, Josh Kreutzler, gave this answer. I'm always hesitant to try to look that far into the future because if you would have told me uh, I'd be working out of my attic for the last 18 months, I probably wouldn't have predicted that either. But there are a number of things, and as, as background Forefront, the company that I co-founded, we actually work quite a bit on the side of the rights holders. And so these are conversations that we have all of the time with our clients. And so I don't know that they're not relevant now. I think they are, but I think they'll continue to be more relevant. And, you know, the first one I would say is continue to find and bring in talent from outside of sport. And that is not to say if you're listening to this and you work in sport, no one is trying to replace you. But I think what we found is both internally at Forefront and with some of our clients is just different experiences, different lenses on marketing and business and social and data bring incredibly new perspective. One of our clients is the New York Mets and owned by uh, Steve Cohen, who runs a hedge, point, hedge fund point 72, and he's brought in a number of his data scientists and analysts and technology people, and they are so impressive and the, the lens in which they see the world and the way in which they make decisions and the way in which they process data, I have learned so much in working with them 
just in terms of, again, their, their view access to the world. And so I think continuing to look for expertise outside of sport is incredibly compelling and, and one way to think about it. But if you work in sports, don't worry, there are, there are things that we can all collectively do to continue to educate ourselves. So there's hope for us. There's hope for all of us. You know, number two, and, and I know this is a theme, but embrace data. You know, again, I shared earlier that sort of our vision is art, heart, and science. And the idea there is authenticity and great marketing campaigns are always going to rule the day, but they need to be informed by great data. And I think you know, even to most of the organizations that we still work with, the people who have in-house analytics and in-house data, not on the team and the professional and player development side, but on the analytics side, as it relates to marketing and fan insights and social, you know, they sort of sit in their own corner and in a silo. And so the sponsorship people are sitting there trying to do deals and when they need to justify their premise, they're walking over the analytics group and say, hey, I need a data point to uh, justify why I want to talk to the auto category or justify why I want to talk to the banking category. So it's almost to prove a premise, right? It, you're, you're almost talking the analytics group after the fact. And the reality is those insights need to drive how we're thinking about campaigns start to finish, not just as an afterthought. And so I think what you're going to see is, one, to continue to educate yourself on how to find what we like to call actionable insights, right? How do you find the signal through the noise? The idea here is everybody talks about big data and access to data. And our contention is, yes, there's a, so many data points out there, but what matters? What is the data point? What is the actionable insight that is going to help the CMO, help the CRO, help the director of marketing and help the brand? And so I think the ability to separate the signal from the noise is gonna be more and more important because it's almost an influx. It's it's too much data, right? Now we have to figure out what do we do with that data and how do we create meaningful outcomes from that data? The next, I would say to anybody out there is continue to embrace and understand digital and digital media. It is amazing to me, even within the sponsorship community, how we think of digital as sort of an afterthought, right? We have all these social media companies that are charging massive CPMs to reach these targeted audiences. And then oftentimes we're busy selling the sign and, and the digital and the audience insights are the throw-in. And if you talk to somebody on the digital side, that's maybe your most premium asset is sort of the, the understanding of the customer. And the one story that I'll share is we have a digital media team and we work with the Chicago Bears in the NFL. And one of the things they do is we create fan networks, audience extensions around their sponsorships. And what I mean by that is we're finding a digital audience, people who are Bears fans, and we're continuing to target them outside of Bears.com or even in season. You know, and one example of that is a big sponsor of the Chicago Bears is Bob's Furniture, and they're a typical furniture retailer. And the reality is Bears.com is very busy during the NFL season, but the traffic obviously goes down in the off season. You can see the spikes and everything else. Bob's Furniture is just as interested in selling furniture in the off season as they are when the Bears are playing football. And the reason for that partnership is that association and that fan base. 
So how do you keep a relationship going? How do you keep a communication going with that audience segment in the off season? How do you create new inventory that is sort of infinite and sort of micro-targeting within that? And so I think we've just scratched the surface as the sports industry to really think about how we use digital as an extension and as sort of a, a key metric within our sponsorships, not just the afterthought. Andrew McCow from the Parramatta Eels is next. One of the things that I think will be more important, and it's not necessarily a new skill, it, it's more a merging of two different skills, and it's, it's what I term informed creativity. And I say informed creativity is the ability to extract, analyse information, develop some insights, but it's combined with creativity, it's combined with innovation, it's combined with imagination and ideation. I think it's really that that balancing of highly analytical with not only people who think outside the box but, but can live outside the box as well, that's going to be really critical. And finally, Brendan Moynihan of Sport5 gave his answer. And this may sound self-serving, but um, I really think that rights holders could really benefit from adding brand consultants, uh, agency people that have had history of actually sitting at the, on, the, on the side of the brands and working strategically on how to come up with a partnership, how to utilize a partnership, what they look for in a partnership, and then really you know, understand the relationship from a different perspective, right? So I don't mean to be negative on the rights holders. Some drink their Kool-Aid a little more than others, but they get very lost in their own worlds and not necessarily trying to be great partners for brands. Once they've sold it in, they typically hand it off to activation people. And those are great people. They understand how to do that part of the world, but they're not necessarily looking for ways to be good partners and driving business together. Do you think that's really about understanding your target audience? Because yes, rights holders have fans and other stakeholders as a target audience on one side of a sponsorship, but really they're trying to sell that sponsorship to a brand and maybe they lose sight of the fact that they are actually one of the personas or avatars that they need to have a really deep understanding of. That's sort of the future, right? As brands become more and more part of the DNA of a sport, they're going to have to have a real true partnership. And so understanding what the brand really needs from it, it's not about checking a box and being like, okay, I now have a wireless partner. Let's move on to beer. It's about, okay, what can we do in the wireless space together to actually build a program that is beneficial for all so that our fans get something out of this and that the wireless partner in a a number of years, we're not talking about a renewal. We're talking about okay, this is going to be extended no matter what because it's vital to the business and they've created something that doesn't should never go away, right? The fans don't want it to go away. Nobody wants it to go away. So it, finding that, the way that they're currently set up, it's a sales team and then it's an activation team and they don't have that link that understands that the whole thing should be a sale process, right? The whole partnership should be about how are we building this together, looking at it and saying, okay, where are we not seeing ROI and how do we make this better so that that the renewal is not even a question. It's just a guarantee. Lifting up the focus, I then asked, what's the biggest challenge facing the sponsorship industry in the next five to 10 years? A nice big broad one for them there. Here's Joel Seymour Hyde from Octagon. Probably the simplest way to answer this one would be that broad question of, does a brand need a sponsorship to get what they want from sport? 
So it's a big question, but I think that's in terms of potential challenge where I think the industry faces its biggest you know, potential risk. So the more there is obviously access to channels and content and stories and conversation around sport in, in, in so many different places, there are opportunities, obviously, for brands to be part of the conversation without sponsorship, whether it's, you know, looking at major sports events like the Euros or you know, the Olympics or actually just sort of, you know, day-to-day um, domestic sport that happens. And therefore, for the sponsorship industry, I think continuing to remind brands of the additional benefits that one gets as a sponsor in terms of exclusive rights and access and content and distribution and ability to be part of the story and creating a role for your product and relevance and authenticity and all these things you know we we talk about in in the benefits list is massively important because yeah the more sport sort of just lives out in the ecosystem the more opportunity there is for brands just to jump on that and you know and you know, create sort of work that just piggybacks off just conversation. Now, a lot of that work is not great, but equally it is clearly a much more cost-effective way to be in the football conversation, for example. So that for me is the the constant risk sport has. And the more channels there are and the more places to go, it's only gonna increase. Well, it sounds as though the old term that we used to throw around years ago with marketing that we don't really hear that often anymore is guerrilla marketing, right? That was always about how do you attach yourself to an event or a cause without officially doing it but still getting the benefits from it? Yeah, totally. And I mean, I think back in the day like when, when we talked about guerrilla marketing, like, you know, the example you're using is literally like Adidas sponsoring the Olympics or or sponsoring a domestic Olympics and then Nike putting up a massive poster of a, a Nike athlete on a building next door to the Olympic Stadium. That's the old school, you know, sort of defined grid of marketing in a, in, a, in a textbook. I think, you know, what we're talking about now is, again, really, this is a simplistic example, but it's just to, to make the point. You might have a, a Twitter handle for um, a brand like I can think of a couple in the UK like, you know, who, who I've seen do it, like people like KFC and Domino's are just the easy examples. Or Pizza Hut actually is another one. You know, So they're, they're kind of quite youthful, playful brands on Twitter, hitting a youth audience, and stuff happens in football, and they all just fire out sort of commentary and comments and try and be funny around it. And, you know, and some of them land and some of them don't. And But the point is, either way, they're benefiting from what's happening in a sport they don't sponsor by using it as a way to create conversation which then might create an association with the product so that doesn't involve buying a big piece of media outside the olympic stadium and have the ioc officials running around trying to get it pulled down it's very instant very quick and to be honest by the time someone's noticed that it's kind of it's had its benefit and gone so you know for a lot of brands that sort of approach of, well, we don't really want to sponsor something, but we do just want to talk about sport is a strategy. And so therefore, as a sponsorship industry, the challenge is how can you work and talk with those brands to, to explain to them and help them understand that actually, once they get their head around the initial investment in the rights, there's so much more they can do, which will push what they're trying to achieve with the audiences they're trying to talk to around sport way further 
than they can get from just sort of, you know, being a, you know, a commentator rather than part of it. And now Sophie Morris from Mill Harbour Marketing. I think it has to be sustainability. And obviously, this is going to be the biggest challenge facing most, if not all, industries in the next five to 10 years. And of course, I mean environmentally by that. Sustainability was the number one trend in the European Sponsorship Association's annual market trends report back in January 2020, so pre-pandemic. And this is ESSA's annual member research. So we ask our members what they think the top three trends will be for the industry, whether, and depending on the time, it can be for growth or for recovery, which which we then collate into the top 10 trends. So in 2020, as we just turned into a new decade, the question was framed as what are the top three trends that will be key for the continued growth of the industry in the next 10 years? And sustainability was that number one answer. Now, clearly, pandemic hit. And so we repeated that research because we knew that obviously the trends would change. So this time we asked what the key trends would be for recovery in the next year. And we repeated that. We did it in April just in that kind of knee-jerk reaction, and then again in October to gauge how the mood had changed. And whilst the importance of sustainability dipped in that immediate reaction, it came back up. And so it is now, along with other cause-related factors, it's climbing back up those top 10 trends. And it will be very interesting for us to see where that shows in next year's report out in the, in the new year of 2022. But sustainability will become an essential, not a nice-to-have for all businesses. The climate crisis is here, it's real, and every company will need to play its part. If we look at sponsorship-specific effects of that, climate change is going to bring further stoppages to events through weather-related disruption. We've already seen the effect with the Australian Open Tennis last year being affected by wildfire smoke. We can expect more extreme weather events to affect, obviously, particularly outdoor sports, whether it's with flooding, storms, extreme heat and wildfires. So from a sponsorship perspective and from a competitive point of view, as you say, for rights holders, we need to build on what we've learned in the last 18 months of the pandemic in rebalancing assets, making sure we can still deliver on sponsorship objectives and obligations, even if events don't go ahead or they go ahead in a different format. So we need to look at assets that can be activated regardless of those events going ahead or not. And going back to the previous answer on understanding strategy, you can only really do that if you know what those objectives are. And it's not just a, here's some assets for cash conversations. So we need to look at the impacts, obviously, that running our events have, and that's you know working with our suppliers to make sure that all the operations meet sustainability standards. And you know you have the likes of, of Formula One, really good example of this as on paper, being motorsport and one that tours internationally for a lot of the year doesn't sound like something that could be very environmentally friendly. But back in November of last year, they announced their sustainability plan to have a net zero carbon footprint by 2030. And that extends to how it powers its offices as well as how it powers its cars. On the sponsor side, we obviously need to think about the rights holders that we're partnering with and the impact that those events and partnerships create, again, if that's in travel or in hospitality and the nature of hospitality and, and uh, reusables that, that we um, enjoy at these events. So reviewing current activation plans and scrutinising new ideas is key. Talking to suppliers about their sustainability policies and how everyone can play a part. And the really interesting thing for me is the recent trend of using NFTs in sport. 
This is a great example. Everyone is very excited about NFTs at the moment, but you need to be aware of their environmental impact and the carbon footprint of minting those NFTs and each subsequent transaction after that. So what the commercial or marketing team might be putting really high up on their agenda might directly contradict the same company's sustainability agenda. And when you have whole supply chains looking at each other's environmental credentials, you don't want to irreparably damage those relationships for a one-off or a short-term you know, single marketing promotion. So just to put a bit of a frame of reference on that, you've got Digiconomist estimating a single Ethereum transaction is roughly the equivalent to 74,000 Visa transactions. So that makes it an equivalent sustainability choice of avoiding flying. And then you have Memo Actin's research of 18,000 NFTs, finding that the average carbon footprint was more than a month's worth of electricity for a person living in the EU. In the art world, we've seen big artists pulling out of NFT drops when they realize the impact it's having. So without getting into lots of details, blockchains are looking at alternative systems that don't rely on such massive computing power. But the message here really is to know what you're getting into. And then I think just from a wider business perspective, many businesses are signing up to the drive to reduce their carbon impacts to real net zero by 2030. And you have industry organisations, such as the Advertising Association in the UK, asking their members to sign up to it. And it's something that the European Sponsorship Association is also investigating. So this will very much be on the agenda for everyone in the next five to ten years, as that's the timescale we have to make any significant change. Next to answer was Sven Glor at HSBC. There's all the obvious, isn't there, around, and you hear this day in, day out, sort of the demise of the, the traditional sponsor category. So looking back at the, the former glory days of tobacco sponsorship to, to those probably in the crosshairs today, uh, the likes of gambling, alcohol, and so on. So for me, that, that's just a part of sort of the natural attrition that we'll always have, and I think will always be supplemented by the new and emerging sectors we're seeing. So the, the sponsorship cycle for me always continues. So that, that's sort of a fact of life. You know, if I use HSBC as, a, I guess, an example of sort of day-to-day life at the moment, I feel as though we've been almost catapulted down the road due to COVID. So there are a lot more questions now being asked around ROI, more than ever before in my time, particularly given the leaner times on budgets. And I don't think they'll ever go away. But some of the specific challenges being raised is, is this idea around, well, if you take away the actual live events or the tournaments themselves, and the glory that comes with those. So you take away the optics. Well, what do you have left for potentially the rest of the year? So how do you flatten out those peaks and troughs? How are you extracting more value from the partnerships? Because that's not enough anymore just to, to put the lights on around those tournament event periods. So you need to elongate that, that value return exercise. And they're the questions that uh, are being asked more than ever. There's another piece that we talk about regularly now at HSBC is how we, within partnerships, trying to be more things to more parts of the business. So... Like before COVID, we were probably 80%, 20% sort of skewed. So 80% were skewed towards sort of a customer focus. The remaining 20%, almost tick box, I must admit, was around colleagues, grassroots, and a few other bits and pieces that you do because that's what the sponsorship manual tells you to do. Well, today, it's fair to say we're at sort of 50-50. So 50% of our existence is still very much customer business-driven. But the other 50% of our time is is now spent for partnerships on you know, the employee focus or community a lot of time with our employee resource groups talking around things like sustainability or 
or DNI or, or Black Heritage, whatever it may be, and using partnerships to bring that to life. And I think that's going to be a, a permanent pivot for Mind, that you're getting more out of your partnership portfolio than just sort of one direction, if that makes sense. Co-founder at Forefront, Josh Kreutzler, gave this answer. Number one, when we work with teams and we often talk about who are your competitors, they start to list off other teams, right? So if it's an NHL team, they say, well, the NFL team in our market or the Major League Baseball team in our market. And I've spent a lot of time in Australia and you can't throw a rock without hitting another stadium. So uh, there's no shortage of other opportunities. But I think we have to remind the industry as a whole that our competition is every other way you can spend a marketing and media dollar. It is not um, the dollar is being spent between this team or that team, but it's every other way you can reach a consumer and create a passion point around that. And so I think where we have to get to and elevate our games collectively is we don't just have to beat out the other team down the street. We have to start to create measurement and valuations and consistency and KPIs in the same way that social companies and and traditional media companies are doing it, or otherwise dollars are just gonna shift. You're seeing social media influencers and individual athletes take greater hold of their individual rights. And so as organizations, as those other forms of media are are out there, and when we run a Facebook campaign or an Instagram campaign, we're getting real-time information on on how that is, is working and the lift that it's creating and the value of those dollars. And then oftentimes we come into sport and we'll say, well, what? how are we delivering on that? And say, you'll get a recap at the end of the season. Don't worry about it. And that's problematic. That's really problematic because as brands continue to be more nimble, we need to be more nimble in how we're sort of creating consistency in that experience, how we're measuring it and how we're sharing data back. Andrew McHale from the Parramatta Eels is next. Well, it's that. We we operate in such a hyper-competitive market in Australia, and that hyper-competition is also being driven even further by, by digital disruption. We know Australia, it's the most competitive sponsorship market in the world. The number of professional leagues and teams in a market of 25 million, it, it creates real challenges for rights holders, and that number is going to continue to grow. At the Eels, we're really excited about the fact that we'll have an NRLW team in this year's NRLW competition. And we see that as a huge opportunity to drive further engagement from existing fans, but also attract new fans. But as women's sport continues to gather momentum, other codes will start to increase their teams and also competitions. And I can't help but watch the Olympics at the moment. I'm seeing the excitement around sports like BMX and, and skateboarding. That hyper competition, it's only going to increase in that Australian market. But that digital disruption, that's also an opportunity and a threat. And I I see the threat being that digital disruption is enabling us to consume through mobility and emerging technologies, expanding global sports through other media networks. And as the access to global sports through mobility, through emerging technologies, and ultimately through digital disruption expands, that's just going to place an ever-increasing requirement on local rights holders to get creative, get innovative, and get imagining. And finally, Brendan Moynihan of Sport5 gave his answer. The last 12 to 18 months has really changed how consumers watch and really just consume their passion points. 
right? The, the COVID has exponentially changed how everyone lives their lives from living, you know, living and working at home in the same spot to then not necessarily turning on the TV. They may actually want to go do something with their families or their friends that is outside. So you're seeing ratings go down across the board almost. And it's because it's we're kind of in this perfect storm of people changing their lives, people not necessarily caring as much, I hate to say, right? And then lastly is, okay, where where do I actually go? Things have been so fragmented and, and there's so many different areas that, that are vying for my attention. Netflix, Apple TV, all these different avenues that, hey, I'd much rather watch Ted Lasso than maybe an EPL game, right? So it's really gotten so much more competitive for people's time and figuring out how people's habits have changed is going to be a massive part of this because a lot of the rights holders are selling off, okay, yeah, you have the TV rights, but you also have the digital rights and the social rights. Well, that also just creates much more confusion on where people are spending their time and it then changes the sponsorship model because if your product's not integrated into the actual sport or event, then you may not be actually seen because you're advertising on one vehicle as opposed to another. So that that is really going to be that fragmentation and how people have con- changed their consumption habits is really something that's going to be really important to watch. We are often looking for edges and progression and innovation in our organisations and industry to give our organisation a competitive advantage. And so I asked the group what area they considered to have the most potential for development in the sponsorship industry. Here's Joel Seymour Hyde from Octagon. So I'm going to be maybe slightly different here, I hope, and not mention anything about social media or digital or whatever the the latest platform is coming is. And actually say, for me, I think the biggest single... And it's still partly a challenge, but it's also opportunity, is the use of talent within the sponsorship contract. It hasn't really moved on for 10, 15 years. And, you know, we still, most rights holders, you know, when you talk about a, a big sponsorship contract, will, you know, have a rule of must use three or four players, must have this sort of team-based rule to any imagery that's used, or you must be talking about the team rather than the individual. And Obviously, everyone understands why that's the case in terms of players having their own direct contracts and direct relationships and so on. But increasingly, you know, we are living in an environment where, in many cases, you know, the reach of the players outstrips the club they play for um, across sports. Um, their background stories are, uh, you know, where there's massive interest. Um, you look at Giannis. Uh, with the Bucks and you know winning the NBA finals, no one's, with all due respect, almost all the content I saw coming out of that final win was Janice based. You know, it's Janice going to order fifty nuggets from a store. It's Janice standing on top of his car. It's his backstory, which is obviously incredible. I didn't see a lot of stuff about the Bucks, and now I'm sure. Again, if I was close to the US, I would have seen more and be more aware of that. But I think what globally what sort of came out of it was, you know, Janice and the MVP and his role in it. And that's one example, but I think it does illustrate, you know, that athlete power now is so huge and so relevant to younger consumers in particular, and like the next generation of fans, that finding ways to work with talent, work with their agents, whatever it, whatever it's going to require, to be more creative around 
how we can use that talent within the realms and remits of a broader sponsorship contract is a big opportunity if if if, if some rights holders can can crack the code on that because it's not easy clearly but i think more and more it is often what brands want and you know we we regularly have conversation with brands either with their existing partners or as they're looking at new partnerships and particularly for the ones looking at new partnerships where we have to go through a sort of education process to then explain well listen yes they have this roster of talent but you know you need to you need to understand and your internal stakeholders need to understand we can't ever guarantee that will be the person appearing in the first piece of content you produce with this partner and they sort of you know they stop for it and go oh Oh, well, I've actually just, you know, sort of half promised the CEO that, you know, the, the first ad we're going to do is going to feature this player doing this. And you have to kind of explain, well, that's not actually how it works. You're buying the, you're buying the team, you're not buying the player. So finding a way to move that piece on, because it's been pretty static for a long time, for me is, yeah, a big opportunity. And, and, and the right soldiers who can find a way through that will probably have a big advantage. And now Sophie Morris from Mill Harbour Marketing. I think the area that has the most potential development is in measurement. This you know, might be an old story, but it's consistently in the top three sponsorship market trends. If I'm t- you know, talking about the ESSA uh, trends report again. So measurement has been in position three for of the top 10 for the two years pre-pandemic. It only dropped out of the top 10 in April 2020 in that knee-jerk reaction to the pandemic, but it came straight back in in October 2020, back into position three, and again, position three in January of this year. So it's stubbornly in the top three, not shifting much. So it's clearly important, yet we have research from the likes of MKTG's Frontier Report that tell us that only 18, that's one eight percent of sponsors are very confident that they can measure business value return with 49% either not confident at all or not measuring at all. So to me, that quite clearly outlines an area for development, something that's important but that people are not confident in. And that's for sponsors and rights holders, actually. So if we look at the reasons why sponsors don't measure, or aren't confident in measuring business value. It could be because it's thought to be difficult or confusing. There are lots of different companies out there saying lots of different ways of measuring, throwing throwing in terms like econometrics at you, or is it a fear of bad results? You know, it's also a lot easier to measure those kind of short-term tactical results than the longer-term brand metrics that are going to answer those business value questions. And I find it quite strange that for many other marketing activities, we are openly and actively trying to find out what's working and also what's not working. We test different messages. We test different designs. We test different channels. We test what time we publish content. We're actively looking for what's wrong in order to focus on what's right. But that just doesn't seem to be the case in sponsorship. And some of the vanity metrics, those big numbers, the exposure, the views and the engagement that make us look good can take priority. But few people can translate those measures into C-suite language of what impact it's actually making on the business. I hosted a series of uh, measurement webinars for ESSA recently, and the main point coming from the sponsors webinar was about the importance of setting objectives and the right objectives, which sounds obvious, but it's about having 
business level objectives, marketing objectives, and then sponsorship campaign objectives, all with different KPIs at different levels and, and measurement frameworks for each. And I've judged a lot of sponsorship awards over the years, and it's still surprising how many submissions come in that only measure in terms of social media likes and views. So I think there's a huge area of development for the sponsors, but also for rights holders. The growth of sponsorship depends on knowing how to improve the offering. And if you don't measure that, how can you know where and how to improve it? So as with any other product, you need to know how it impacts your customers and take proactive steps to, to seek to improve, to keep customers loyal and to stay ahead of the competition. So here we're talking about assets, the sponsorship offering, but also the service that comes with that and the outcome it delivers for sponsors. So you need to know where to act in order to improve. Where are the problems? Where are the areas that sponsors aren't so satisfied? And if rights holders want to be more innovative and analytical about understanding their sponsors and, and how to improve their, their offering and their service for both acquisition and retention, then that's that's our area of expertise at Mill Harbour Marketing. So for me, it's, it's measurement that will be the key area for development or growth for both sponsors and rights holders. Next to answer was Sven Glor at HSBC. The obvious we talk about sort of data insights and CSR, DNI, etc. is there's this idea that it's coming to the fore now in our industry, which is this flex and fit partnership approach we talk about. So over the course of a contract now, sort of the ability for rights holders and brands to to sit together and create it's almost new offerings annually, or I think it's going to be even monthly. And that's sort of to accommodate the, the shift, the ever the ever moving shift in focus on on objectives. So you have this, uh, I think, a little almost fluidity around rights and entitlements, and not be locked into the traditional fixed assets that we, we used to get. And that sort of leads into my, my next point I think, around this idea of sort of mutually beneficial partnerships around IP and product and service offering. So I talk about this a lot at work. This idea of a two way conversation versus traditionally sort of one way traffic. And then how can you know, brands and rights holders together sit down, almost co-create product and service offering to support each other's causes? And from that, sort of this idea of personalising the fan experience as well. So that, that's one area of opportunity. I, I think the second for me is the idea of this incentive-based partnership model. So it's something we've worked on, again, with World Rugby, is building in KPIs for the greater good of the sport. So for us now, we've got this combined common goal between us and World Rugby around how are we going to to grow the game of sevens. And we're working on this sort of more collaboratively than ever before. And the whole idea is just, it's ultimately it's a win-win for both parties. And we've put our, our names to against a number of um, key metrics. Co-founder at Forefront, Josh Kreutzler, gave this answer. There's a lot of ways to answer this question. And, and I'll, I'll answer it two ways. Is, is first and foremost, owning the customer relationship 365 days a year. I think the idea that um, we only think about our customer, and I'm not saying that teams do this, but I think there is an opportunity to get much better, is to really understand who our fans are and create sort of a, a through line 365 days a year. I've been in multiple rooms, even in the last couple of weeks, and these are teams I won't, I'm sure will not want to be named, but have said, you know, we're selling a lot of tickets, but we have no idea who's in our venue because the secondary ticketing market is very big in the US. The ability to data capture is not great. And so we have all of these sort of general insights, but you'd be surprised at how few teams actually know who's sitting in those seats and what their behaviors and their, their trends are. 
the company that's been really impressive to me most recently is Fanatics and the CEO, Michael Rubin, I, I find to be an incredible visionary because what he's done is they recognize that owning the customer and owning the data around the customer can ex help them expand in so many different areas. And so that's the reason they just raised another $325 million in an $18 billion valuation is because that customer journey is they understand that if they can understand what they do to buy merchandise, they can understand what they're going to do around gaming and, and, and you know legal sports betting here in the U.S. and other places, what they can do to create new assets around NFTs and new memorabilia, new opportunities. And so I think they're way ahead of the curve in terms of understanding what it means to own the customer. And I think that's a really good lesson for teams and leagues in the industry is we can't just understand who our customer is on game day. We have to understand what the, who they are 365 days a year. And secondarily, what I think there's a massive opportunity to do and something I'm personally spending a lot of time in trying to educate myself on, I'm by no means an expert, is just embracing new technology and specifically things like blockchain and crypto. I don't think these are fads. I think these are things that are here to stay. And it took me a little while and I'm still learning even on the NFT space. And I was like, ah, is this a real thing? Like, why does this have value? But then I look and I like, I'm like digging through my attic for my old comic book collection and baseball card collection. And I'm like, well, why does this baseball card collection have any value? And I'm trying to show it to my son and he's just on his iPad. And he's like, dad, look at this YouTube clip. So value is in the eye of the beholder. And I think not only from an NFT perspective in terms of how you can create new opportunities and new inventory, but also just in terms of blockchain technology and what it can do for security and interactivity and customer data. I'm I'm absorbing everything I can in, in that space to try to understand it. And even what Christie's has done selling some massive NFTs is all super interesting to me. Andrew McHale from the Parramatta Eels is next. Without doubt, it's data and insights. Sports sponsorship and rights holders have historically traded on passion. Passion's been the currency, but, but not really deep level insights. And I think about traditional marketing, while generally void of passion, they've probably been operating with a bit more mature view on data and insights. And look, when you think about passion, you think about Ariana Titmus winning gold in Tokyo and the reaction of her coach, Dean Boxall. And you know, I think about how Dean reacted, and it's really a direct replica of, of me in my lounge room at home or, or at Bankwest Stadium on weekends when I see Mike Acevo driving over for a try. And, I know there are hundreds and thousands, if, if not millions, that behave in that same way. The passion that sport trades off is unrivaled. The moment we can combine intense passion with deep insights, rights holders and brands will be in a really strong position because I'm of the view that it's at the intersection of passion and insight where magical things can happen in sports sponsorship. And finally, Brendan Moynihan of Sport5 gave his answer. The leagues have started to do this, but I really think that teams and brands need to see themselves as, as content hubs, right? As, as really a place where people can go to engage with their passion points, right? And and really have a authentic relationship with their consumers. Teams are, are just starting to do it, but there's no reason that the Dallas Cowboys or the Pittsburgh Steelers can't be their own content hub and be giving content to, to Pittsburgh or Dallas or wherever that the NFL isn't, 
right? There's so much content that, that can be done with the, the team, I think is just kind of scratching the surface. And brands are kind of the same way, right? And in, in, in their partnerships, they should be trying to build authentic ways for people that like, I think Nike's doing a great, I think a couple others are doing great that, okay, you're looking for this type of content, we're gonna give you more so that they can go find it. Of course, while sponsorship should always be a partnership with all parties benefiting, we can't escape the fact that sponsorships are largely underpinned by brands wanting to achieve an outcome for their marketing. So I asked, if we fast forward 10 years, what would you describe what brands are looking for and what they want out of a sponsorship? Here's Joel Seymour Hyde from Octagon. I'm really split on on how to answer this question, if I'm honest, because, you know, on one side of the coin, you would say, 10 years, I mean, it's crazy you know, to even, if you ask like a sort of tech futurologist this sort of question, they prob- they'd probably laugh at you and say, you know, absolutely no way of answering because the speed of, you know, evolution of um, technology and communication in particular is so fast that we just don't know where we'll be. But equally, you know, there are lots of things that didn't exist 10 years ago that are sort of ubiquitous parts of our life, you know, whether it's an Uber or Deliveroo using TikTok, you know, they're kind of everyday things that just, you know, become verbs in their own right in terms of how we behave. So on one side, you've got massive technological change and development, which means it's a really hard question to answer because you just don't know what will be available to even evolve uh, sponsorships by. But then, but then on the other side, the actual sponsorship contract itself hasn't, you know, in terms of its like component structure, hasn't really revolutionized in the last 10 years. Like if I look at a contract from, well, you know, I've been with Octagon for 14 years, so I've seen a lot of contracts over that period. And the actual contract itself and how it's structured and the benefits and the rights and the assets hasn't fundamentally changed. All that's really happened is there are more channels to distribute it through, you know, that didn't exist 10 years ago. There are obviously some slightly more unique assets and more digital inventory and, you know, commitments to post in X places X number of times, but that's still just a, a channel piece. The actual contract itself, yeah, hasn't massively shifted. So you could kind of say, well, whilst tech will continue to evolve at an unbelievable pace, there's no obvious sign of you know, a ripping up of the sponsorship contract itself and, and rewriting it in a different way. So it does make it a very tricky question to answer. So I suppose the simple answer to it, based on what, we, what we've observed and seen, is that what brands will ultimately demand from sponsors is even if the component structure remains consistent, so you know, I am a brand and I'm paying X and in return I expect Y, what they will always demand is that those contracts are, are nimble enough to keep up with technical change. And so as distribution channels evolve, as the ways that consumers consume content and media evolves, the contract can keep up. And I think that's the key thing. So if, if in the end, the, the fundamental premise of a sponsorship contract is it gives you access to exclusive things, you know, content and other things, that you would not be able to access otherwise. That core premise remains the same, but the speed of distribution of those things into the right places is the key. So I think maybe the biggest single change we'll get is maybe there'll be an innovation around sort of, I guess you'd almost call it like real-time contracts, you know, where 
rather than sort of terms that stay fixed to three years. And, you know, if if tech is you know created during that period, you're a bit stuck about it. There's a there's a bit more of an ability to constantly evolve channels and distribution and, and how it works and make sure that as a brand, there's always this feeling of security that if the world moves fast, um, your contracts can keep up with that. And that happens a bit already, but I think the speed of it will have to will have to increase. And what I love about that answer is it's it's a win-win, right? It's not like the brands are taking more off the rights holders. In fact, it actually makes the the partnership stronger because the brands are getting more outcomes, the more of the types of outcomes that they want, and the rights holder has more of an ability to be able to deliver that, which means that come renewal time, all being well, they're probably going to proceed. Yeah, exactly that. Yeah, it's it's certainly not just a one-way transaction with a the world changes and the brand demands more. And, and in the end, often, you know, one of the big benefits a brand can have for a rights holder in these things is the brand can be the one sometimes testing new channels if the rights holder's not quite there yet. So as long as they get the right to use it and push things out in those places, then the rights holder's able to evolve with their sponsors as they keep pushing things on. And now Sophie Morris from Mill Harbour Marketing. I think great brands are already using sponsorship to drive long-term brand growth. But I think in 10 years, we'll see that being much more commonplace with brands looking to own far more than you know, advertising space in front of large audiences, but to own meaning and to do so consistently and to drive that medium to long-term brand building rather than the focus being on a, on a short-term activation or short-term kind of tactical results. If we look at um, some research that I, I love quoting, it's Field and Burnett's the long and the short of it research that they, they do um, in association with the, the IPA here in the UK. They um, analyse case studies from many companies that have submitted their submission to awards over many years now, um, and they have been able to analyse that data and as a benchmark have determined that we should be putting 60% of our investment into long-term brand building and 40% into short-term activations. And in a number of cases, you would find that that is at least switched, if, if not more. There's a lot more into short-term activations. And you can kind of understand why. If it's short-term, we get an immediate result. If that number's good, you know, our focus, it's more easy to determine. Determining long-term brand effects is harder. So sponsorship by its nature is, is well-placed to deliver on those longer-term brand objectives. But rights holders need to shape their offering with that in mind because that's where the big ticket sponsorships will come from. And coming back to the point on skills being needed, rights holders need to know how they can deliver to sponsors long-term business objectives. I also think that Sponsorship we use for those wider business objectives again, so not just marketing and, and employee and community, which are which are quite common now. So brands will expect a higher level of service from rights holders to understand those objectives and facilitate that longer-term brand building activity. Without that support from the rights holders, again, sponsors have to put the resource in themselves, which reduces the value of the offering to them. It also comes down to measurement. So if sponsorships are measured tactically separately from marketing or separately from the business objectives, they face being cut if they're not as resource efficient as advertising, which seemingly is a lot easier to understand. So 
I think we'll see a lot more sophisticated measurement of business value impact and a greater C-level understanding of investing in that longer-term brand building. So it's a difficult switch to make if you're focused on, on short-term now. So that's why I think it's relevant in a 10-year in a period. But sponsors will need to gain more internal power to make that work. They have to prove the value. They have to influence that C-level. And they have to position sponsorship internally as able to align and contribute to the wider business objectives and you know, doing that and integrating it throughout all the, de the possible departments and, and seeing how the sponsorship can, can help them, not just on you know, generating those short-term sales. And again, sponsors are, are very likely to look to the rights holders to help them with that internal influencing. Next to answer was Sven Glor at HSBC. Well, there's two things here. One is the the ability, I guess, to to pull the commercial lever more than ever before. So, uh, you know, the the power of sort of reporting, the ability to report back into the business with the the help and guidance and assistance of right holes to help bring that to life is important. So, as an example, we, we're using uh, Core Dashboard at the moment to to help us better manage our data reporting evaluation process. So, from a brand's point of view. Being able to have that access to, to first-party fan data, and it's almost an information powerful, right? The more you can get from your rights holders to build your own business case, the better it is for them as well. So there's this, there's this information exchange, I think, is is critical. So can rights holders truly help that? But for me, there's, there's another one now. It's sponsorship it will always be, and I think the bedrock will be, it's in the business relationships. That's not going to change. But there's an area, I talked about it earlier, it's sort of the purpose-led DNA. So I think more than ever before, Brands are going to be asking the questions around what is a, a rights holders brand purpose-led DNA? What is it authentic? Is it credible? And most importantly, is it going to be a fit? So do they complement each other? And I generally feel that that point alone may even see the end of some of the partnerships we see today as a result. So I think brands are being asked more and more questions than ever before around what are their cause-related focuses and purchase decisions are being made around these respective societal measures. So partnerships are going to have a massive role to play in that going forward as with the right side. And I think for me, a great example again is we're being asked to live and breathe our, I guess, our, our core purpose and values from a DNA point of view around equality, women's equality at the moment. So our global sporting ambassadors are being paid in parity for their time. And that's something that, again, we've been asked to sort of, I guess, lead the charge, almost spearhead the, you know, the, the campaign within HSBC through our partnerships. So I think that will be critical going forward. And the last one is this idea of, um, again, value, not vanity, something we talk about regularly that, again, how can partnerships truly demonstrate commercial returns? Because, again, we're going to be constantly asked that question. This won't go away. How are we being seen not to be as a, an expensive vanity project in the eyes of many and be better recognised as a business driver? And I think that is an area of opportunity, but also a challenge as well going forward. Co-founder at Forefront, Josh Kreutzler, gave this answer. I think it's all of the above. And I think, by the way, they're not asking that in 10 years. They're asking for it now. And I, I think the other the other piece of it that's really interesting is, you know, we had 18 months of very little sport. And so brands found other places to spend those dollars. And when they were finding other places to spend those dollars, they were getting real-time reporting. They were getting incredible data in and around those audience segments. You know, there was social listening. There were all there were analytics reports. And now we're sort of jumping back into sport and saying, hey, let's wait till the end of the year and we'll give you a recap of how you did. And again, that's not good enough. 
the idea of saying, hey, our fans are 12% more likely to buy cars and 15% more likely to buy banking, we're, we're just beyond that. We're just beyond that as an industry. And so everybody has to work a lot harder. And so what I think brands are looking for, not only 10 years from now, but now, are holistic, ownable positions in sports. I think they really want to own something. They don't want to be the third sign from the left in a stadium. They want to understand the fan and really understand the customer journey. They want real-time measurement and valuation. We have a, a client in NASCAR who shared with us, they have one agency who measures their TV. They have one agency that measures their social. They have another agency that measures their signage. And so they're like, well, at any given time, we're going for our renewal with Pepsi, and I got to figure out which one of our agencies we're going to put in front of them and, and which data. And so I think as an industry, brands are going to demand some consistency in, in how we measure and more real-time reporting. You know, again, the idea of saying, hey, look, we're going we're gonna to play this the season out, and at the end of the season, you're going to get a recap report, and we're going to tell you if we over-delivered or under-delivered. And oh, by the way, if we under-delivered, we'll get you next year, right? No, it's like I'm running Facebook, I'm running digital. I can tell you minute by minute how things are going. And so I think our ability to get more real time with that. And lastly, just be nimble, right? Is sometimes we lock into these partnerships for three years and brand initiatives are changing so fast that we have to be flexible and nimble in the assets that we provide, in the way in which we mix those assets up relative to what's working and what's not. I think there has to be the autonomy in the contract to say, look, it was this much hospitality and this much social and this much digital, but the digital is performing really well and we're actually not able to get people out to the game. So let's fix that. Let's not just sort of live and die by the contract. And I think, you know, especially with COVID and everybody coming back, brands are going to require that level of nimbleness going forward. Andrew McCow from the Parramatta Eels is next. Brands often have very different objectives that, that do change, but more often than not, it's at its deep core, it's it's often the same. It's developing deep connections with fans. And what I do see changing, though, is the how brands go about achieving that and, and how they go about achieving a deep connection with fans. And two things for me come to mind. And the first is I think brands are going to be looking for a high degree of flexibility and agility. The environments that brands are operating within, they just move at such a rapid rate. There's a high degree of volatility. There's a high degree of uncertainty, complexity, ambiguity, and how brands utilize sponsorship benefits, which you've touched on. They could change week to week, let alone year to year or over a five-year contract period. What it requires is a greater deal of flexibility on the rights-holder side to ensure that they can be as agile as the environments that brands operate within are. And that really excites me, that the ability to react quickly and be agile and the ability to do that hand-in-hand hand with brands as they're moving quickly and in an agile environment, I think that's just going to create even tighter bonds and relationships between brands and rights holders as they're riding those waves together. The other is integration of the digital content that keeps brands top of mind beyond match day. If I think about the Parramatta Reels, we are one of the most largest supported clubs in Australian sport, yet we get about 3% of our total fan base actually attending match days. 
And that creates a real opportunity for brands as it relates to a couple of things. One, being able to integrate brands on match day outside venue, but I think more importantly, being able to integrate brands in digital technology that extends beyond match day. Fans are multi-channel, they're digitally savvy, they're looking for immersive digital experiences and rights holders need to be thinking about servicing those requirements with a view on brand integration. And finally, Brendan Moynihan of Sport5 gave his answer. I think they really need to sort of own a unique part of the actual game or the event or whatever it is. They need to be an authentic part of the experience so that they are offering something to fans and consumers that they truly own, right? So whether that's a, um, a clip at the end of a game or the highlight, you know, it, it, it's always been like sponsorship 1980 was, this is the highlight brought to you by Miller Lite, right? That's not really a thing anymore. People don't care about that, right? That's not, the, a sponsor doesn't really get any love from that. It feels very fake, right? And it feels like, wait, this really shouldn't be done this way, but it's really done a lot that way. It's still, very pro prominently done and it needs to mature right it, 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 that's kind of what i was saying before where the they need to work together to create a partnership saying okay what can we really do together that fans are like yes that brand brings me this and i look forward to it every time so that there's something that the brand actually truly owns in the relationship i think that's the the, the important part of how sponsorship should grow because Doing it the old way is just getting worse. And and my kids, I mean, they're young, they're eight and seven, and they see it now. You know, they're they're on YouTube instead of TV, and their YouTube, if, you know, their YouTube favorites are pushing brands, and they like kind of roll their eyes. But at least they try to make it authentic. It's not like this highlight brought to you by whatever, right? So it it kind of needs to mature a little bit. And finally, a nice big broad question, a blue sky thinking question, and of course, one that focuses on what so many have touched on in their previous answers and an area so important to all sides of the industry, and that is data. And I asked, we are still 10 years into the future. How do you describe how data is being used in sponsorship on any side of the fence? Here's Joel Seymour Hyde from Octagon. The way I'd answer this one is, is probably to make it sort of contextualised with my experience this summer. So been fortunate enough to attend finally you know thankfully a few sports events this summer you know sort of po we're not post-covid but as we've adapted to COVID. so been to the euros the hundred which is obviously the new cricket tournament in the uk uh, and the open golf and wimbledon actually so yeah it's been a, a good a good summer to be back but also nice to observe how each of these rights holders and events have sort of managed, um, you know, the, the challenges we have at the moment. One of the big things, obviously, has been ticketing. So each of them has moved, you know, to online ticketing. And when I say online, I mean download an app and your ticket is in the app. And then you, you know, when you uh, go to the ground, barcode's activated, scan barcode, in you go. And that's been very efficient and, you know, sort of COVID safe and, you know, a bit of a shame for my scrapbook because you can't really put an app into your ticket scrapbook, which is something I think they do need to think about. So I think that that's a, that's a free a free one for them. Sending out physical tickets after the event as a sort of memory might be quite a cute thing to do because, um, you know, I love collecting the tickets and then, you know, having them to sort of look back on. But anyway, that wasn't the answer. Um, 
but one one of the things I've noticed is the experience, you know, the ticketing of the app, of the follow up, is still I, I would say quite generic. It's not that personalised, and you know, I'm not a data expert by any means, but for me, I think there's still a massive opportunity to have much more personalization of sort of experience and content unique to the individual rather than, you know, the kind of broadly generic ticketing app stuff we're seeing at the moment. And so if you think about, you know, going onto social and and that's not always a good thing, but how the algorithms can kind of follow you around and you accidentally search for suitcases and then suddenly on every social platform you're on, you see a suitcase coming up. But that sort of, you know, that sort of personalization, understanding your behavior, what you do doesn't really exist within those apps and that technology yet. And I think there's a massive opportunity there. So, you know, understanding the fan and as you build the data on that fan, how they like to experience the match, I think is is huge. So that's, you know, pre-game, during game, post-game, even to the extent of starting to learn, well, okay, this type of fan they're one of the ones who likes to get there really early and take it all in. So they're going to be much more interested in sort of the retail experience. So we're going to sort of tailor content for them, which is about, you know, could be promotions or sales information or chances to, you know, early purchase before the game. You've got this big eventer who doesn't really know what they're doing and they just turn up for the big match. So they need a different type of experience. You've got, you know, your younger fans who want to stay in the pub to the last minute. So what can you do for them? You know, and I think that that's probably, you know, the next stage. I know across every brand will talk about personalization, but I don't think many brands have the opportunity to do it in quite the same way a rights holder does because you've got a captive audience who are desperate to be there. And, and again, you know, what you saw observing firsthand during these events is everyone clutching their phones, desperately looking at that app refreshing their ticket information to try and get in, you know, and there's not many brands who can have that close connection to technology and data with what they're trying to offer. And I think, you know, there's very sophisticated brands that would be incredibly envious of, you know, how how prepared fans are to give up data, how prepared they are to use it, and probably how receptive they are to tailored messaging. So for me, massive opportunity, loads that can be done, but it's about making it more more personal to each person who's using their device. And now Sophie Morris from Mill Harbour Marketing. I think the obsession with data is not going to go away, but I think that the nature will change. Uh, and data use will be about getting better insights, not just more insights. I think we'll use data to connect more closely to audience and not just treat them as data cows that we use to, to get a sort of higher investments. And rights holders need to use the data they have and the data they can get to become the absolute experts on their audience, both the fans and the sponsors. Uh, for fan data, it'll be about becoming the sole holder of that relationship and using your expertise and the data you have to add value to the sponsors, advising them on how best to engage with your fans. But I think the big tech backlash throws up some pretty interesting concepts, though, with users will pay for services such as search engines rather than pay with their data as they do now. So who owns the data has the power. And at the moment, there is a huge 
huge data power imbalance, which consumers will increasingly seek to rebalance. So you need to think about a world in which customers don't want to share their data anymore. And this is going to help sponsors, rights holders and agencies to think hard about where the value in sponsorship is. So, for example, what, what would you do if you lost all of your social media followers tomorrow? Where is your audience that you're, you're basing certainly some of your sponsorship value on? You might have less data in terms of quantity, but you'll certainly have more in terms of quality from the data that you actually own yourself. So those who hold the trusted relationship with their audience will get more of that critical data. But to be trusted, you need to use it wisely. Therefore, sponsorship needs to be with partners where there are genuine shared objectives that the audience will welcome being a part of and having interactions with. So rights holders can therefore increase the value of their offering by becoming that sole holder of the relationship with fans, not just selling your rights, but the deep understanding of, of how to engage with them. And this could mean bringing research and analysis, as well as creative capabilities in-house or using agencies that work under your guidance. But hugely successful rights holders will be equally exceptional at understanding sponsors and fans and will be able to provide value to both through sponsorship. Next to answer was Sven Glor at HSBC. I think we're sort of almost mid-stage or early stage at least in the, it's almost the sort of digital marketing arms race, aren't we? With sort of data at the forefront. So I think from some of the trends we'll see, these roles are going to be brought in-house as part of standard partnership service offerings, if it hasn't already. So I think where you're seeing at the moment, current third parties of supplier, almost the agency model approach, I think that will be folded into where agencies will, I think they'll be asked to invest in properties. To, so my fear is they'll almost be asked to buy a seat at the table to then become the, the official delivery partner of a rights holder. So almost a JV type scenario. So if you look at, think of an example, but you've got, DHL today is the preferred logistics partner to, to World Rugby. Well, that you know that could potentially be a, a green room or two circles playing that part to become the official digital marketing services partner. But I think they'll have to almost buy their way in. And I know we talked about it earlier and it gets, it gets thrown out a lot, but if data is the, the new oil at the moment, then in 10 years' time, it's going to be very much for mind the, the established trading currency with sponsorship. So I think by then, we'll have a much better understanding of the value of it and how to put it to work and a much, much clearer value exchange in terms of negotiations of new partnerships as well. But can I just add, I think it's something that gets thrown around a lot that you touched on about the power of data and everyone's talking about it. But I'm somewhat buyer aware as well. So I think my own personal experience that having access to it is, is only part of the equation. The real value is putting it to work for you. So I think there's a theory of it. It's brilliant. But I also think the practical elements around effectively plumbing into your existing CRM systems or something else. And, and that's much, much easier said than done. So, look, I hope that in the next 10 years that becomes a much more seamless journey. Co-founder at Forefront, Josh Kreutzler, gave this answer. I think it's consistent, whether it's the rights holder or the brand, is to create a 365-day relationship with the fan. There's no longer an in-season and an off-season. There's the idea that a fan is a fan and understanding their passion points and what they're doing when they're not watching it. The brands will demand it and the, the, the rights holders uh, need to understand it to sort of create a relationship with the brands. I mean, they just go hand in hand. So the idea that there's an in-season and off-season, we really have to understand that consumer behavior. But the other thing is, 
great insights lead to great ideas. And so I don't think data comes at the exclusion of great ideas, right? Everything that we talked about to open was all of the, the campaigns that I, I referenced that were the best were all heart driven. And so I think if you understand your consumer and you understand your fan, it allows for great insights, which ultimately creates you know, better passion points. So the more I know you, the more I know how to pull at your heartstrings. And so I don't think data comes at the expense of uh, you know, great ideas and great creative and great content. So I think all of that is really, really important. And I think you know, you're seeing, I think esports does a really good job of this, by the way, as well. We we have a client, Evil Geniuses, who does such a good job of creating a 365 relationship with their fans creating great content, not just around gaming, but just around lifestyle activities. And then they're really good at delivering that on the social platforms where and when people want to see it. And that all starts with great insights and great data and understanding their fans. So I think, you know, to summarize, it's art, heart, and science. It's all three of those things. So understanding the fan and the consumer behavior does not come at the expense of great ideas and great, great passion. Andrew McCall from the Parramatta Eels is next. A really big focus will be around that data monetization. And when I think about data monetization, I'm thinking about it in the context of direct data monetization, but also indirect monetization as well. And I believe rights holders have a huge role to play in both of those forms. And from an indirect monetization perspective, rights holders will continue to use data to build insights that they can turn into actionable outcomes that serve fans. And that'll really drive hyper-personalization, but also contextual customer experiences. And I think there's a real opportunity for brands to, to leverage off that. If you see how signage is working in some markets at the moment, you could be watching a game of rugby league and be served different advertisements in one market than another market watching that exact same game. And I don't think we're too far away from that geographic segmentation even getting deeper and making way for hyper-personalization based on household, where you could be a household watching a Parramatta Airs rugby league game being served advertising in-game from McDonald's, where your next-door neighbour might be receiving advertisements from My Muscle Chef whilst watching the same game, based purely on how those households behave. The other huge opportunity is around direct monetization, where I think rights holders will be in a position where they'll be able to start selling or licensing their data to brands or third parties. And that's huge. I think that's a real game changer. And we're already in discussions with the university at the moment who's looking to license our performance data to inform tertiary programs that they run. And I really think looking 10 years in the future, selling and licensing of data could be as lucrative for rights holders in 10 years as traditional forms of marketing are today. The challenge that I sometimes hear is, but what about privacy and the restriction of accessibility to data? And you know, you can't help but ignore some of the advertisements you're seeing at the moment for the iPhone 14.5. And the idea of restricting data has been really critical. I actually think it's a really good thing for rights holders if they can demonstrate that they will use the data in a way to improve the fan experience. Because what I'm hopeful of is we end up in a situation where fans are saying, hey, listen, I want you to have my data because you're using it in an awesome way that engages me, which then in turn, rights holders can use to drive other outcomes. And finally, Brendan Moynihan of Sport5 gave his answer. 
data is vital. Without data, you can't really understand what consumers are actually looking for, right? The best marketers know where their consumers are, what their consumers want, when they're trying to consume things, and then how to deliver it to them, right? And without data, you don't have any of that information. You're just kind of shooting in the dark. And if something succeeds, you're like, oh, that was great. Like, let's try to do that again. And that's kind of like the lightning in the bottle thing that, you know, everyone kind of says, oh, this is neat. But the typical advertising, that's going away. People are deleting that from their lives. And yes, the Super Bowl still may have some great commercials and there still may be some times that commercials have their meaning, but it's the, without the data to actually drive decisions. And again, I think that's important on all sides. I think agencies, rights holders, and brands need to work together to say, okay, we've pulled our data. This is where our fans live. This is where your fans live. This is when they actually consume. This is our overlaps. Let's figure out how best to partner together to deliver something to them that they actually want and then work together to do it. So data is a vital part of that. Well, there you have it. Episode 100 and the first in the three-part mini-series, which looks at the future of sponsorship. So that means over the next two episodes, we will speak to another 12 people in the industry and get their views on the same questions. Having already recorded a bunch of those people, I can tell you that there are some very good answers. And by good, I mean thought-provoking. It has been really interesting to hear some people talk about the same things, which gives us a lot of confidence that we're focusing on the right areas, but also hear some differing and even new takes on the same subject. By no means is this some sort of prediction show. We're not that good. But it should get you thinking about how you can help push your organisations and partnerships forward. So thanks again for joining us for the 100th episode, and I look forward to you joining us next time. In the meantime, if you'd like a shout-out or you want to connect with me on LinkedIn, just search for Daniel Oyston. That's O-Y-S-T-O-N for November. That's a wrap for episode 100. Until next time, I'm Daniel Oyston. Thanks for listening to Inside Sponsorship. For listening to the show. For more episodes and to subscribe to the show, search for Inside Sponsorship on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever it is you listen to your podcasts. Also, for more free industry specific resources, including blogs, ebooks, white papers, and our Insights newsletter, head to coresoftware.com. Finally, be sure to follow Core Software on Twitter and LinkedIn. <laughs>